This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Go With Yammo. Go With Yammo is an art exhibition app which helps you to find the exhibitions, art fairs and art events happening all around you. The app displays exhibitions based on your location, so the one closest to you will be at the top of the list, but if you're planning a trip, you can of course change your location to a different city. What makes the app really fun is that whenever you are at an exhibition, you can check in and earn points, which can then be used to redeem prizes from the in-app store, such as prints, exhibition tickets, books and more. Go With Yamo also create custom virtual exhibitions for galleries and artists. You can find all of these on their website, along with some great blog content, including artist interviews, exhibition recommendations, quizzes and reviews. The app is free to download from the App Store and the Google Play Store, so make sure you check it out and visit their website, www.gowithyamo.com. That's www.g-o-w-i-t-h-y-a-m-o.com. Hello and welcome to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. Um, This series is an exciting one. I am joined co-hosting this one with Molly of She Curates. Molly, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners for those who don't already know you and your um, super popular Instagram page? Yeah, I just want to say quickly that your hair is incredible. (laughs) Thank you. Like, so cool. (laughs) Like a whole, like, lockdown-induced like kind of staring at myself too long it was blonde for a bit and then I got bored of that and I've just been it was orange for a bit and that's red you know just go (laughs) red vibe going because I'm red dressing it so (laughs) very true and I love the red lip do you know I got big into the red lip just before dyeing my hair and now I'm a bit it's a bit of an overkill when I wear it so that's a bit sad no I bet that's well cool I bet that looks really good I've never dyed my hair ever Right. So I'm not a teenage emo phase or anything. No, literally, never. I, I had an I had an emo phase. Like I was proper into like um fingerless checkered gloves and MCR <laughs> and everything. So well still I'm into MCR, but um but no, I never dyed my hair. Well <laughs> look fabulous. So let's let's begin. Yes, as Rosa said, I'm Molly. Um I run She Curates. I'm an independent curator based in or Southeast England, and I started She Curates at the very beginning of lockdown in the UK because all the exhibitions, all of the initiatives that I'd come up with obviously all suddenly halted to sort of almost never happen again, as I'm sure is the same with a lot of people. And it was a way to champion the artists that I had been working with or wanted to work with. And it just really grew from there and it grew from everyone's kindness and generosity with their time to me during lockdown because everyone was suddenly on their phones and I could contact anyone I wanted to <laughs> and yes this is really exciting to be here and I've been so honoured to be asked to do the auction for Art on a Postcard I've loved everything you've been doing for so long and we've got some exciting collaborations coming up as well which I'm really looking forward to so thank you for having me fantastic no it's an absolute pleasure I'm so pleased that you're that you're keen to do it um so will you talk us a bit through the auction what was that like so you, you so Molly has curated a mini auction um, for us at Art and a Postcard, which we're so excited for. There's some phenomenal artists, phenomenal work coming in. Um, so yeah, Molly, would you tell us a bit about what that process was like? 
honestly it's been an absolute dream and I think it's a testament to Art and a Postcard how willing and excited all the artists that I approached were I don't think I'd anyone turn down the opportunity um like I say it's a real testimony to you guys and everything you're doing and it was just such an exciting experience to sort of look up artists and work with artists I hadn't worked before I wanted to work with and also see their work in a miniature scale obviously a postcard people go from doing meter by meter to suddenly doing a postcard and it's really exciting seeing the works roll in and seeing how they've acclimatized if that's the right word to produce that smaller work and I think like you said I think the lineup's really exciting we're, we're going to be speaking to a few of them on the podcast um, over the next few weeks so I can't wait I'm really excited we have Erin Lawler today who um, is an abstract painter um, and her cards are just stunning have you seen the cards that she sent in yeah, I have just, yeah, amazing. I might be bidding on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so good. So I'm, I'm super interested about your um, kind of your, your She Curates page and how that all came about. So you mentioned it was a bit in lockdown. What sort of, were you working as a curator prior to that? Yeah, so I've worked in the arts since I was about 15 when I first started pushing your way in as you do and I started working um, and volunteering at a art fair that's near me um, in my sort of local village and I actually worked as an artist for a year but sort of hopelessly as an artist for a year um, and yeah and I've always been into events um, and into working with artists and I think when you're going through school uh, in the arts it's either you're an artist or you run a gallery and that's the kind of you know um, polar sides of it and I didn't didn't want to necessarily do either of them and yeah but I, I just decided that I, I love working with artists I love working with galleries but not necessarily in them at this time and yeah and curation just seemed like the obvious thing to be going into but it's one of those really kind of cryptic careers that you can't almost really find out too much about um there's so many obviously different options and so I just started working in a local gallery near me um, when I left school and I've been volunteering and working with them in different um, ways for years and been working with them and then yeah let's say lockdown hit <laughs> and um, everything stopped and so I started doing it independently as well as still working with them they're an incredible gallery called Wing Art Gallery if anyone wants to look them up and is that in, are you based so you said southeast are you whereabouts are you based I'm based sort of 20 minutes from like Hastings. Really? I live in Hastings. Yeah. No way. Yes. Oh, that's so cool. I can hear the girls in the background. <laughs> Honestly, this podcast, like the, the 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 third host of this series will be the seagulls because they are everywhere. They're so loud and obnoxious. Um, as you oh, probably know. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, the, just so funny how the minute you said Hastings, it was like girls in the background, obviously. <laughs> exactly um so do you have how do you find sort of doing the social media thing like not being kind of in the galleries and all that sort of stuff like is have you had to adapt to sort of like do you have to be on your phone loads <laughs> oh yeah my screen time is appalling like really really like shocking like absolutely appalling um yeah it's, it's been really fun I think social media is one of those things that I really disliked for a really long time and I think it's very easy to dislike if you're following the wrong accounts and if you're interacting with, you know, in the wrong spaces, I think, as, as we know, it's yeah, very easy to well become quite miserable, I think, with social media. But I think it's it's really about pick and choosing the places that you want to be following, pick and choosing the things you want to be seeing. Um, and all the accounts I work for are, are wonderful. And it's a really nice way to be really involved in that side, be involved in the artists and the galleries 
um, and the online community and also supplement what you're doing as a curator because like I say being a curator is, is a really tough kind of gig I guess yeah. and it's a really nice way to kind of go alongside that um, and I met some amazing people for obviously your your good self <laughs> included. You must as well as you know you're obviously sort of um like you said your screen time is appalling but it's kind of out of necessity isn't it like it is your it's your job that's the space that you work in and is that how you often would find artists that you you kind of um work with and highlight is it through social media massively yeah because like not being based in London and not well for a long time not like having you know the funds and stuff to be able to be going up all the time it's quite difficult to see all the shows you want to be seeing and that kind of thing so social media makes everything really accessible um and like I say during lockdown it's been a really good way that you know, you see a really cool exhibition, you see a really cool artist and you can suddenly message them because, you know, you you can message anyone on Instagram or pretty much everyone. Um, and yes, it's, it's a really good way to highlight things. And you really go down rabbit holes of, oh, I really like this artist. Oh, it's recommended this artist. Oh, they've recommended this artist. And it's such a good way to find really unique and exciting talent that maybe aren't exhibiting yet and being able to highlight them in that way. And I think with my account, I tried to highlight artists from loads of different, you know, um, stages of their career or stages of their what they're doing and I think that's really nice to sort of show them together yeah fantastic that's great and also I suppose like you know with what you're doing you keep it's extremely diverse you highlight such a broad range of of um you know female identifying artists um and so I think you know it's it's one of those things where it's also something for good it's like something culturally interesting it's something that feels like refreshing as well your page that it's not just the same old voices the same old faces I think that's you know that's what makes it such an exciting account thank you that's really lovely to hear thank you very much yeah do you ever get um sort of because I get such anxiety on social media like if I post I posted I posted a video of my dog this morning and within an hour I was like looking at who saw it and then I was like no delete I just like you know panic it do you ever find do you ever kind of get that same anxiety because it can be quite a scary space as well social media um how do you manage that oh my god yes <laughs> um I struggle massively with anxiety anyway and social media especially as your account grows really feeds that anxiety to be totally honest and I, I am really honest about it on my page and I talk about it quite a lot and I speak to a lot of people about um, mental health and protecting your mental health because it is at the end of the day the most important thing um but yeah you're right you know when your account has 100 followers you think kind of what's the worst that can happen this is my mum and my siblings and <laughs> my friends and then as it grows you do become very aware that a lot of people are looking at your things and there is a kind of scrutiny around things um the biggest anxiety I had to begin with was and I still have it is just representing the artist in the best way so I never wanted to put you know out an old studio pitch they didn't want to see or you know say the wrong thing about what they're trying to represent or anything and I think in the way that I do interviews is the way to sort of combat that so I'm saying exactly what they're saying about their work and giving them a voice rather than writing about it myself because mm -hmm. I kind of think without seeing the studio without really having really deep conversations with them like who am I to say what their work is saying I can say what I think it's saying and what it says to me but I'm very kind of careful to yeah be representing them in the way they want to and they all have a lot of um well they have as, as much or as little control over what I post as they like like some artists really want to be like this is what I want to showcase and this is what I want to be talking about and you know promoting an exhibition or a new body of work but sometimes it's just a really general overview of them and their practice which is really nice to have a have a mix and I hope it keeps it 
fresh I hope yes definitely and I think like you said you know language is kind of everything and, and adapting adapting you know so we're making sure that when you're writing your own opinion on something it's very clear that that's your opinion and I suppose clarity and um in in what you're saying is is kind of the most important thing and, and a way of sort of avoiding any kind of um you know confusion around what your intentions were with a post um and so do you have to do you do you often find yourself you you come offline you have you know detoxes or whatever <laughs> to get away oh not yeah I need to though I've been talking to so many people about doing like a real detox and just turning off my phone but it's it's so hard especially when it's your job as well like it's not just I think I think people often think I do just run the she creates account but like I said I run oh god I think it's like eight accounts now wow. um, so it's really really full-on and anyone that works in social media and marketing just knows it almost doesn't stop like you don't just have like I work Monday and Tuesday it's like you work every single afternoon you respond to all the messages as they come through and it's very very full-on but everyone I work with is so understanding and lovely amazing friends and people so I could always say I need this day off and it would be fine. Like over, over the last two days, I had a couple of days off getting my degree result and that kind of thing. Can I ask, what, is it good news? It is good news. Congratulations. So, so while I was um, working full time, I was studying with the Open University. If anyone's interested, please ask me questions about it on my social media, whatever. But um, really, really recommend it. Really exciting way to do university that's not actually going because as we all know, university is crazy expensive. So I couldn't go when I was 18, when I was going to go, because I was going to go to university in London right. and it was just crazy expensive. Oh, so wow. expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went into the old, I went to work at a pub actually, <laughs> when I left school <laughs> instead. <laughs> Everyone has, every good person has done a stint in a, in a pub. I feel like it's the, it's character building. <laughs> you need character to. building is the word. And I think it really gives you respect for people in hospitality. Like I think everyone should do at least a month working there just to see how painfully <laughs> difficult it is. And especially if you're working as like a bar staff or wait staff, you fight both the kitchen and the customers. <laughs> you're right in the middle of it. So true. The fiery chefs are a stereotype. They have earned that stereotype. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But they're, they're often good fun when the um, final orders have been called and everything. Then they're fine and they get a pint. But yeah in those dinner hours it's quite scary <laughs> yeah it's kind of a really um it's like a demonstration in being able to leave work at the door like I, I would see a chef get so angry and irate and then an hour later after the shift yet like you said having a pint how you doing chatting away and I'm like how how, how I, I could never exert that much passion and then just chill <laughs> it's so you'd be almost you'd be serving food almost like in tears after they've like lobbed a bread roll at you <laughs> and then they're like oh do you want star food and you're like oh my god I'm sorry (laughs) exactly um so congratulations on your first um and running eight accounts sounds intense but you do it and that's very impressive (laughs) thank you thank you very much like like I say it's a really it's a really nice way to get involved in organizations and really like know everybody there because you have to be involved in every aspect of it to make sure that you're you know producing the right content and showing the right things and yeah it's exciting yeah very very cool um so we have Erin Lawler joining the call any minute now um how did you find Erin have you worked with her before no you know, I haven't actually exhibited her yet but I 
obviously in my interview with Erin really early on she was one of those artists that I saw and I thought I'm never ever even gonna make out of the requests on her DMs um she's the most lovely artist and I did a virtual tour of her space with her um she showed me around and it's incredible and everything about her practice is incredible and I'm just so excited that she agreed to be part of Art on the Postcard because yeah just love love her practice love everything about her work and she's incredible I could really fall into those paintings like they're so inviting they're quite sort of um kind of transcendental and like meditate like I find it like a meditation sometimes like having a look at these works and just falling into them they're so beautiful you're so right they're like deceptively simple but you could stare at them for hours so yeah stunning yeah 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 and she uses this amazing color palette this quite sort of it's quite chalky and hazy. It's quite dark actually, isn't it? Like a lot of dark pinks and, you know, charcoal greys, like, all, but, it, but it somehow, like I say, has this meditational kind of effect that I guess I normally would associate that with sort of bright light kind of, um, kind of artworks or whatever, but um, yeah, she achieves it with this great, great palette. Fantastic. You're so right. I totally agree. And they're sort of almost like Renaissance colours. I think they're like really bringing the contemporary out of that palette. And you're so right. They are dark, but they are so inviting. There's nothing scary, but I think there's a real thoughtful quality to them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we're very excited to have Erin join, who is on her way. Hello, Erin. <laughs> that was nicely timed. <laughs> that was very well timed. I can see her work. I can't see Erin. <laughs> Hi, Erin. How are you? Okay, thanks. Thanks. Where are we calling you today then, Erin? Well, I'm actually at home for the moment. I will be heading to the studio later, but as there's a little bit of building work going on there at the moment, the internet connection is somewhat intermittent there right now. So I thought it was safer to do this from here. I hope that's okay. But yeah, home, home in East London. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast and for giving some time over today. That's quite all right. My pleasure. So, Erin, we would love to chat to you first and foremost. I was reading a bit about your work and it went and I looked into your bio and everything. And I read that you studied in, 19, in 1992 at the Sorbonne. And I thought maybe we could go back, take cast our minds back. To, we're in the 90s. We're in Paris. We're studying. How did that um, what was that education like? Because the Sorbonne to me is such a, like, you know, kind of <laughs> magical idea in my mind of it being this place where everyone's like smoking cigarettes and, you know. <laughs> I, I think it was to me. I mean, I think I very much went out to Paris in the late 80s. I mean, I graduated in 92, so I was actually studying. I arrived in Paris in 87, straight out of school. I was supposed to be there for my year off and then... Yeah, got totally caught up in the in, in the fantasy of the place. And I was very much hesitating at the time between, I mean, more, more I was writing more than painting. Um, and had I stayed in England, I was set to be studying English Lit, actually. Um, but I'd always drawn and painted since, since I was a child growing up. So it was very much, you know, the, the creative impulse was always there, but there was the back and forth between the two. Um, and yes, I mean, I'm very much just, you know, fell in love with, with Paris, the place, felt at home there. Um, um, wanted to stay so I sort of switched obviously from English lit to, to art history which brought me back to painting and um, it was a wonderful ov overall you know education to have three three years plus um, studying art history in Paris um, you know a wonderful visual education to have um, but 
yeah, I mean, it's just such as the way of life. I didn't go out there intending to stay the 26 years I ended up staying. Um, and art history and archaeology was, of course, a fabulous thing to study and covers so much else as well in terms of, of, of general culture. You can't study art history without studying both, you know, literature, history, philosophy, so much that goes with it and, and a wonderful place to do that. Um, what was sort of clear to me is, I mean, in between studying and you know, being in France and in French is that more and more I was sort of letting go of language as my primary means of expression because I was more and more stuck between two languages, um, whereas obviously painting is a more universal language. Um, and uh, the other thing was more the more I was looking and studying, the more frustration group sort of built in me in terms of actually doing myself. And I started painting more and more myself. And by the time I sort of gave up halfway through my master's, having got my um, BA, I, uh, it really was clear to me that it was for, for oil paint, not just paint, but oil paint. And that, that was my, yeah, my, my chose, chosen life medium, <laughs> really. And that's remained the constant in my work since, I'd say. That does seem to be, I feel that with painters who work with oil, there seems to be a sort of um, a masochistic element to it as well, because the medium is so sort of, you know, I, painters often talk about the graft, the sort of the paint never, you know, it moves with you. It's this kind of um, uh, tough medium to work with. But that, I mean, that's what's so wonderful about it, though, at the same time is it's, you know, is that is that sense of working with something that's almost alive and something that, that talks back and something that doesn't necessarily do what you want it to exactly um, you know, if everything were controlled and preordained from the get-go, I think it would it would engage me a lot less and interest me a lot less. Whereas oil does have this sort of you know endless capacity to surprise and to do to do some some wonderful things. Um, you know, to, to surprise me in the studio. I mean, there's also the bad surprises. There are the paintings that die overnight, and uh, <laughs> um, but it is such an alive medium, and I think that's both you know, really what engages me with it so much, both as a practitioner but also as a as, you know, as a spectator, as someone who looks at a lot of paintings still today more than ever, um, what, you know, the paintings I love uh, can be very, very different in terms of abstract, figurative, you know, um, but what they will probably have in common is the aliveness of the paint. That's fascinating. And, and has your work always had a semblance of the, this beautiful, like you say, movement, ripply nature of your current practice? I, mean, I think so. The first 10 years I was painting, I was painting almost exclusively figurative work. I was actually, despite being in Paris, very much looking back to the School of London and portraiture, partly because being sort of self-taught as, as a painter, I'm obviously not really self-taught because, as I say, three, four years of art history is far from that. But in, in, in a technical term, being self-taught, I was picking up on the portrait as a very complex thing to do and therefore a sort of a real challenge. I was sort of feeling if I can teach myself to do that, then I can do most things. Um, but there was also the fact that there was very little painting actually going on, paradoxically, in Paris at that time. It was everything's very conceptual post 68 painting had pretty much been chucked out of the art schools as something uh, bourgeois and, uh, you know, redundant. Um, so you had to if you were painting in Paris at the time, you yeah, very much had to conceptualize that. But that led me, as I say, to look back even more sort of to England, where there was still a very strong tradition, where there has been actually throughout the 20th century. It was almost the advantage of England having been sort of a bit behind the curve and all the isms and coming to them 10 years later than most of Europe actually meant they had time to integrate them into a local tradition and a tradition of painting here, I think. 
Um, so, but I, I, it took me, I'd say 10 years really working figuratively and then a few years of realizing I needed to let go of that, but not being quite sure where I was going to really face up to my fascination with, with the brush mark and the movement of the brush mark in oil that can be in itself so fascinating that can incorporate space and time without being overly explicit that it can be, um, that, that wonderful space in between space that painting allows between being painting and being and representing something else. Pierre Kierkeby spoke very, very well about the inherent dishonesty of painting. <laughs> and I've always loved that because obviously it, it at this point in time, all, all painting is meta painting to a certain extent. We are only too aware that, you know, Unlike in the in the days of ancient Greece, we are not at any point, you know, believe, believing our own lies on the canvas. We know that paint is paint still. So, um, but yes, that I think. I mean, I've always and, and sometimes cursed myself for it. Had that um, ongoing fascination for the, the brush mark and its movement and the beauty of that, the sheer pleasure of oil paint. But people talk a lot about the suffering of the artistic life, but I mean, there is an inherent pleasure principle. I think <laughs> the basis and. Um, and uh, oil paint is certainly a very luxurious medium. Mm. Yeah, so you mentioned that initially you were a writer, that that was your formative kind of form of expression. Um, I was fascinated looking through your works and also reading alongside them the titles of your works, which are often extremely poetic um, and very, um, really beautiful. And I was wondering what the relationship between those titles and the artworks are. Do they come first? Do you make the artwork and then words sort of come? Or how does, how does that work? Well, for a long time, I was painting nothing but untitled in, 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 in pure radical painting tradition. Um, when my work became more abstract, it was untitled number whatever. Um, I came back to titles I, I think at a time when I was exhibiting more and more and becoming more and more accepting of, not just accepting of, but embracing the notion of um, the relationship with the spectator, the person who comes to the work and the acceptance of the fact they themselves will bring their own baggage to it. And that the, the more, you know, the more abstract the work in some ways, the more people try to uh, project something onto it and that while and that the title is sort of a useful way in it's a sidestep I mean as you said a lot of them may seem poetic that's largely because they um, in many circumstances are, are quotes from poems and from time to time you're a bit of Shakespeare or other people creep in um, they are I hope like the paintings sort of implicit rather than explicit they are things that that, that lead a way in but without being to um, to sort of dictating in terms of, of what they are telling you. They're, they're another clue, sort of, I hope, and another way into the work that, that hopefully helps people to sort of um, get the sense of the work without, without telling them what they're seeing too, too clearly. Yeah, I mean, and, and as to where they come from, sometimes it's obvious. Um, you know, a friend of mine who's a wonderful painter said to me, you know, that, that old question of when a painting's finished, she always said a painting is a stranger in the room. And I think that's very true. There's a point at which sort of, you know, it's finished when it starts talking back, really, when it becomes its own thing. And so, and some of the works, yes, it's quite obvious what they're, what they're called or more often there's, there's a sort of, there's a, there's a piece, there's a, there's a, the, you know, I can see what it's about and I then have to struggle a little to find the right words to put on that again trying to find that right distance between um, something that feels right with the painting and at the same time it's not overly explicit either because I do think it's very important to leave a space for the other person 
<laughs> and you say that you're going into your studio later today. Um, what are you working on at the moment? Oh, um, I'm actually going in this afternoon to see the photographer to shoot a lot of work I've been working on in these last hot days. Um, I've been essentially putting together the final touches of um, work to ship out to Miles McHenry Gallery in New York. It won't be shipping for another month, but obviously there's drying times. Um, that's for a show that's early, actually early next year, but, but they have to have to shoot the work when it gets there again for the catalogue. So it's all, you know, in, in advance of that. There's also some works that will be heading out to uh, Australia, Fox Jensen Gallery there. They're doing a wonderful group show called Raven with a really good lineup, essentially very black paintings. So I've been working sort of in those two directions for the last um, few weeks between the darker works for Australia and the uh, uh, somewhat lighter works for uh, for New York early next year, which is exciting. I just received the catalogue essay from Dr. Grant Vetter for the New York show, which is you know, lovely to read and <laughs> very, all very exciting, yes. And hopefully, I mean, I should be doing something in London imminently, but it's a little early to announce that. <laughs> Embargoed for now. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and that sounds like a very sort of admin based day to day. But in, in general, when you go into the studio to do your practice, do you have any kind of rituals that you observe when you go in? Um, I mean, there's always a, a sort of getting into the space and the headspace um, when you're in there. I think that's got easier over the years. And I would say today is a bit of an admin day. But yeah, every day for the last month six weeks pretty much I've been in there and painting and not doing admin at all which is probably why I need to catch up now um it's yeah getting in there and just I mean really just sitting around for a while and sort of absorbing there's usually quite a lot of reorganization I mean I have I'm lucky enough to have a quite a large studio now but the way I work flat on the floor means that the sort of there is there's the going in and looking at what has been done the day before and what's on the floor and the way it's drying and if something's died overnight as I said or if it's or if it's come out with a you know some kind of other surprise that's more positive and there's often a lot of sort of moving the works around and looking that that proceeds actually sort of getting to work again and um, I then in some ways I've sort of got rid of the whole fear of the blank canvas thing in the sense that the way I work means that when I start working there's a few layers that have to go down um, before I start the work proper because as I'm working wet on wet I don't want to be dragging back through to to a blank canvas I have to work with two or three or four layers underneath in order to be able to um, work with the oil the way I do through the layers so in many ways while those layers those first layers have an effect um, in terms of the color on what's going to happen later I don't need to overthink them in terms of what else is going on so that's quite a nice way in for myself um, that as I say both alleviates the the stress of the blank canvas but also means I can sort of be refined my own gestures it's a very physical way of painting I have so it is a question of yeah, physically as well as warming up and getting engaged slowly with the canvas. <laughs> and as yeah, the famous Guston quote, leave everything else at the door. <laughs> that, that sounds um, really fun, actually. It sounds like... <laughs> it is. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and Molly and I were really admiring your colour palette before you joined the call. Mm. Um, it's, you know, um, Molly said there's a ref there, there's potentially references of, you know, Renaissance painting. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sort of um, quite um, 
ch charcoaly, you know, quite rich, deep colours. Um, yeah. How how did you come to this? I know you obviously move between mm. also, but how do you how do you decide what colours you're going to use on any given day? Um, well, there's a preparing of the colours in, in, in the various tubs that, that, that is sort of um, required in advance. That said, I usually have a fairly full palette out there and, and I can mix things up as I go along. So it's not, it's not ever completely decided. And quite often, what, particularly when I think things are very decided, there will quite often be a sort of change of, change of mind at the last minute. I kind of actually hate, I, I mean, I don't really believe you can predetermine that much with oil. It's not in the way I work. It's also not something that particularly interests me. I, as I say, I don't think I would be fully engaged with the process if I was sort of doing a colour by numbers, this is what goes there and that's going to work out. It, it really is very much about micro decisions at the time and being attentive to what's happening on the canvas um, and sometimes when I have sort of trapped myself into into almost going through the motions that's when I actually find I deliberately upset the whole thing at the end and actually mix up something that's a completely contrary color and go somewhere different with it because it's, as I say it is important to me to be a very alive process um, there's often also a moment of sort of slight despair at the end when everything's going horribly wrong, where you actually decide to just go, you know, nothing more to lose really in terms of that canvas and you go somewhere completely diff different and, and that suddenly works. Um, that said, obviously, yes, I, over the years, my palette has, I hope, you know, matured and widened. I think that's partly a confidence in the work process. It's also it, it's, it's a cost thing, to be very honest. People don't like to talk about that, but the, the better pigments, the cadmiums, you know, have a higher cost. And uh, particularly the way I'm working with very liquid paint um, to get the stronger colours and the cadmiums, you really do require a good quality, you know, high pigment oil paint in order for that to survive the solvent. Um, there's also, as, as you mentioned, you know, the Renaissance, there are outside influences that come in and those will very much shift and be dependent on, on what I've been looking at, um, either deliberately. I mean, I know that two years ago, a trip to Rome, I hadn't been to Rome in quite some years. And I realised when I came back that Caravaggio had surprised me by sneaking into the studio. I had, I'd, I'd expected Tintoretto more, but it was Caravaggio who showed up. Um, so, and the colour palette definitely <laughs> was uh, showing through on that. But then there are other things as well, much less noble um, and much more surprising and that, that do sort of sneak in almost despite myself. You know, I often also do realise that, um, you know, be it, be, it, be it Dr. Zeus or, or Morris Sendak and um, you know, all sorts of things, Disney, Disney colours sometimes, you know, things that are much less highbrow also. Um, I think like most most painters, I'm a, I'm a visual magpie. There's all sorts of things and all sorts of things that that have crept in over my whole lifetime without me realising. It was only very recently on a trip to Walthamstow to the William Morris Museum that I had a sudden flash of memory of the William Morris wallpaper that I grew up with till the age of five, six, and that uh, had surrounded me and been become this sort of Morris Sendak where the wild things are space in my room that was no doubt no doubt that immersive experience is something I've been to trying to find again ever since that, that because space and painting is such a space of projection and imagination. Um, to be immersed in that is, yeah, probably something I've been trying to refine. <laughs> I love the idea of cat in the hat. <laughs> well, I did a whole exhibition called Cat on the Raz and other tales from Fish Island once. And that was, that was actually very much about our black cat 
going off at night and keeping us up all night. Um, it was actually interesting because just last week I realised that at Charleston they have a picture, uh, I think it's a Duncan Grant painting, or is it, or is it Vanessa Bell with all her cats? But one of them had actually done a picture called Cat on the Razzle as well, <laughs> which I had no idea existed. But yes, obviously, cat people finding those um, common experiences. As I say, all sorts of things creep into the work, whether or not you're, you know, as sometimes I only sort of realise them afterwards. Fantastic. I love that. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> Um, and obviously you've produced these wonderful works for the auction. Um, do you have any stories behind behind the works that you've put in? I'm sure people would love to um, love to know the influences. Um, well, it's, it's a slightly um, yeah, different thing, obviously working on that tiny scale. It's actually, I, I, I work on lots of very different scales and perhaps quite unusual in that. I mean, some artists do, some a lot, a lot don't. They can kind of have standard sizes. The largest of my works sort of do go up to seven or eight meters wide in polyptics. Um, and these are obviously postcard size, so they're the, you know, the other end of the spectrum. I've always really enjoyed, you know, there's, there's completely different challenges to different scales and what you're trying to do. Um, uh, these two works are part of a sort of a series. When I do work I mean, oil on paper, they're, they're, they are, you know, oil and my usual way of working, but on, on um, oil paper. Um, it's uh, a slightly different process, and I do work them as sort of multiple works, several works at the same time when I'm doing that. I obviously have to pre-cut the paper to the right size and then work, work with them like that. Um, because of the size, they sort of do become, to a certain extent, sort of colour studies, hence the, the chroma element of the title. Uh, but they uh, really, I feel that sort of very complete little things in themselves. I... Uh, I, I, as I say, there's, there's something that's, that that micro macro aspect where actually surprisingly as small as they are, I feel that there's almost sort of a small universe contained in each. Um, yeah, every time I have worked on smaller things like this, you know, I was also did some works a year ago for another charity at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I do sort of always realise how much I actually, how much I enjoy working on that scale, but also how much they seem to suffice actually in terms of being not just studies, but complete works in themselves. No, I just really wanted to, again, say how wonderful I think it is what Art on Postcard is doing. And thank you, Molly, for inviting me. Um, you know, I've had various friends over the years who've suffered from hepatitis C. It's, uh, yeah, it's an insidious one and, and one that still requires a lot of education across the board. So it's really, you know, wonderful that you're doing the work you are. So thank you very much for giving your time, the two of you. We're totally in love with them and we're so, so grateful for your <laughs> generous donation. Um, they're extremely beautiful pieces and I really urge the listeners to go onto our website, artonapostcard.com and take a look at those um, as soon as they can because, as I said, they are stunning pieces. So thank you so much, Erin. Thank you for the opportunity to, <laughs> to, to do something. That was awesome. That I was kept saying art on the postcard. I was like, <laughs> myself. I was like, Molly, why are you saying this? I was like, you know. Art on the postcard. We just have one postcard that we send around and everyone's got Art on the single postcard, yeah. I literally was like, I was thinking, I was like, how on earth can we edit that? So I go, art on the postcard. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to just get a little recording of you going, uh. Yeah, and just in, put it in, like input it. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was really good. Did you think it went well? Erin, it speaks about her work in a way that is just so brilliantly in command of what she's doing in a way that is just fascinating. I love that. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was really, really great. Yeah.
and and even like her studio like it's like her studio is this like endless dinner party of influencers coming in and like almost like whispering in her ear and like demonstrating and then she yeah produces these masterpieces from masters and also from cat in the hat which is my favorite thing (laughs) (laughs) so good well molly it was lovely um to chat with you as well at the start it was good to get a kind of um to hear about you and your process and everything all right i'll let you get on and i'm gonna just you know do any just double 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 check that i've recorded everything correctly (laughs) awesome well good luck fingers crossed yeah (laughs) yeah see you soon Bye. bye